uh, this morning is, um, uh, sorry, I did that one. I'm looking at this other one here. Is the question, why did Lot move to an evil city? Well, great question. In fact, we were looking at that over the last few weeks concerning uh, Lot's choice of living in Sodom. Now, we know originally that Lot chose it because it was a plentiful land. Now, surely he knew that uh, there was um, talk of what Sodom and Gomorrah were like, but the Bible is really silent about whether he actually knew the depths of that prior to moving there. We know that Lot, according to the scriptures, is righteous. And so we know that he was concerned. Uh, passages in Second Peter and other passages in the New Testament tell us that he was concerned about the evil there. And so there was a sense that perhaps uh, Lot was going there to see that God would show kindness or redemption there. But we know his purposes were eventually, or at the beginning quite selfish in the sense of choosing a land to when he separated from Abraham to go and uh, dwell in a land that was fertile. And that area was quite productive. And so uh, he chose it for that reason. But we know that in the context of the, the um, narrative of Genesis, that he was very aware of the evilness of that city and that his heart became way too attached to it in such a way that he was saved barely through fire. In fact, he lost his wife and the end of his life seems very sad because he was so close to that. So uh, our previous messages uh, answered those questions uh, concerning uh, how we, even as God's people, can get so wrapped up in life in this world that we end up burning ourselves in many ways because we are close to this world rather than closer to Christ. But the hope from that passage uh, in that question is that the Lord ultimately pulls us out of evil and we see his saving work uh, in the passages of Genesis. So children, thank you for engaging. I don't want to ever ignore you. We know that you have ears to hear. We know that the Lord is guiding you through uh, your parents as well, who God has given to shepherd you. And I'm glad that you're um, looking into the word and seeking to follow along and uh, interact with the children's worship guide. So thank you. With that said, let's turn to our text this morning. Genesis chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 7 is what we'll look at. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had borne him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated.
Many times in life, we are called to wait. Waiting is something that God teaches us over the course of our lives. In fact, in his sanctifying work, it's patience that he builds through that waiting. It might be as simple as a trip to the DMV, or a red light, or waiting on a significant event in your life. Waiting is not easy. But it's in the process of waiting that sometimes we make a really vital mistake in interpreting waiting as a no. Ultimately from others, but also from the Lord. There's times that he is calling us to wait and we interpret it as a no and it affects our relationship with him and even our faith journey with him. We actually have seen this in the context of the book of Genesis. If you look at Abraham's life and his journey thus far, you see the ups and downs. You see him lying about uh, Sarah being his sister so that he can protect her and ultimately think that he is responsible of protecting the promise that God made to him. But we also see great acts of faith of Abraham from the very beginning of following after God in selfless devotion to the Lord. We see his uh, sacrifice. We see his ability to um, lead in his larger family and amongst his servants to circumcise them as God had commanded. And you think about the, the details of how hard that must have been. You think about his constant faith in looking ultimately to the fulfillment of this and even how his wife has interpreted and her struggles with it, as we saw with bringing Hagar to Abraham and thinking that they could fulfill God's plan their way, which God ultimately corrected. We see the lack of faith in so many ways, and yet we see the faithfulness of Abraham in other ways. We have talked about this before, that in the light of what God is doing in our lives, that the beauty of Old Testament scriptures like Hebrews 11 talks nothing of his faithlessness and talks everything of his faith in God, which ultimately the scriptures tell us was accounted to him as righteousness. This should encourage our souls as we walk and journey through life that we certainly will fail. But it's in that failure, who are we looking to? It's in that failure that God actually draws us closer, that he redeems even our sin for his purposes, as we've seen in the narrative as well. I hope that you're growing here and seeing that in Abraham, he's not this far-off patriarch that was perfect. In fact, he is an example of faith that we today ought to have in following the Lord, in seeing him accomplish his purposes in us, in seeing him take his name to the ends of the earth, that he would be made famous, that he is sufficient for the least and the last and the lost. He is the one that is to be praised and worshiped and looked to. But in the midst of our circumstances, the grind of life happens, does it not? And so here this morning, as we look at chapter 21, we almost come to a climax. And the narrative doesn't seem to actually uh, focus there or, or even give an excitement. It's simply a record of what happened. 
And that is historical narrative. But in fact, this is something that the last chapters of Genesis, even since the end of Babel and God starts working with one person after judging the world, we see this anticipation over decades of time that this promised son is actually here. And so we see that God has done this in a revelatory way over time. At first, he didn't tell him when it was happening. It was over 10 years that they were still questioning when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And then it was told that he was not going to be that promised son. And then we come to this beautiful passage two, uh, two chapters ago in Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, while the angels visited him and told him these wonderful truths. It says, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door behind them. And do you remember what she did? She laughed. Abraham also had laughed. And there's physical reasons for that laughter we'll see in our text, but also the glory that God is going to recycle that laughter for good. And we see the beauty of this in this text, that God in his promises sometimes brings those to fulfillment in time. They're incremental, if you will, as he continues this progress of redemption in the life of Abraham, let alone through the rest of the scriptures. So I want to look at this text in four points. First of all, we're going to see in verse 1 that this promise finally is fulfilled. This promised child is actually born. Secondly, we're going to see that God does this through the people he chose in verse 2. And then thirdly, we're going to see that God actually uses this progeny and all who will come after him to fulfill his purposes. It is a setup for what he is going to continue doing in his great plan of redemption as we see his, his constant thread of redemption through the book of Genesis, let alone the scriptures. And then finally, we'll look at the progress of his plan of redemption and what he's doing even in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. He doesn't stop working in them just because he's brought this son into the world. So let's take a look at our text here. Notice that in the context here, we've just come from this squabble with Abimelech. He's still uh, dealing with him. He's actually going to come back up in the text uh, in a few weeks. But notice here that it's in at this time that a year has passed since chapter 18, verse 10. And it says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. See, God's promises are God's promises because it's the one who's made those promises that we can be assured that they will come to pass. This should encourage us as we think about that. And we can intellectually know that God has promised something, but we need God's help to believe that promise until its fulfillment. In other words, there's ways in our generation that we're looking to the future, that if Christ doesn't return in our lifetime, we believe that he will continue the work of the gospel. He will continue the work of the churches that we leave behind and go on to eternity, that God is going to continue using those in future generations. Is this not the truth that we are seeking Christ to return at any moment, but at the same time, by faith, we're trusting him that he may not come back for a thousand years? And this is why we disciple our children and we uh, preach the gospel because we believe that he's going to accomplish these things, but it's in the midst of that sometimes we get short-sighted. 
but we see here the beautiful rendition of the reminder that God keeps his promises, and particularly in this text, to Sarah. He visits her. Notice the intimacy involved that he remembers and he visits. And then he doesn't just visit. Notice that he, and, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And specifically concerning this child that uh, was going to be blessed in Sarah's womb. But notice the context that it's, it's intimate, it's personal, that God does visit Sarah. He does what he promises he accomplishes it, not always in our time frame, not always in the way that we expect, but God keeps his promise. And God is able to do that which he's promised. And so in verse 2 here, we notice that he does this through Sarah as well. But he does this in the two people that he's chosen to bring this to pass. Look at verse 2. It says, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. So we know the, the promise was there, but we also know that the process is under God's timing. And we know that her conception was of the Lord and that she herself brings this child into the world. And notice it says, At the time which God had spoken to him. Isn't it interesting, this actually gives us a great uh, desire and a connection to the gospel. Uh, the Galatians says that at the right time, God sent forth his son. That we, there's this great expectation when it comes to that which is to be. There's something about the birth of children that gives us hope, that gives us newness. It's, there's a fresh start, if you will, and we see this new child taking their breath and we realize that God is going to do something through the life of this individual child. But particularly in this passage, it's fascinating that this child was one that was promised, but God did it in his time through the most uh, unexpected means, through the life of of an older couple who are well past their time of conceiving children. In fact, their whole married lives had been uh, lived in barrenness. There was this angst that was happening in the context of Sarah's life over many, many years. Abraham seems to have been bothered over many years because of the promise, and yet this hadn't been fulfilled. And so we see that God works his promises in time and space through the people that he chooses to use. You look at this throughout the scriptures. It's not just here with Abraham and Sarah. You think about how you, the line of the patriarchs, uh, how he's used them. We'll see this in the life of Isaac. We'll see this in the life of Joseph. We're going to see this in the life of Jacob. We're going to see this in the life of Moses. Yes, all the way through even the prophets of the Old Testament, even through the life of Jesus, we see that God uses people in his time, in his place to accomplish his purposes. And yes, church, in these latter days, he's using his church to accomplish his purposes, even when we feel short-sighted and that we cannot see. 
See, he's chosen a people for himself, which in seed form is right here in the covenant that he made to Abraham, that he will raise up a people for himself. He will bring a people to praise him out of the world that has been uh, sold under sin and slavery and Satan. God is going to be praised. He is going to redeem. And that very hope should give us encouragement this morning that the preaching of the gospel is still effective. It's still worthy of preaching because God is still saving souls. He is still taking people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so here we see that God uses not just the fulfillment of his, prop, prop, uh, of his promises, rather, but also that he does it through his people. Now take a look at verse 3. Notice the promised progeny of uh, Abraham and Sarah. It says Abraham, even when you read this in the Hebrew, the father of many nations or the father of many, you read here, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now, this is uh, very important for us to see because we know that the context of all these announcements, laughter was a theme. In fact, Isaac in itself means that he laughs or laughter in general. That he, by faith, is naming Isaac based upon the conversations from chapter 18 that he had with God and the angels. We know that there was this uh, forward-looking promise that he was doing that he would bring laughter but there was also a very practical way who would have thought that this older couple would have a child and there's a laughter in, a, in the astonishment of what God had done and he redeemed that laughter of unbelief and made it a laughter of belief and yet a hilarious moment of that they are indeed found to be recipients of God's great grace. I tell you what, church, the church ought to laugh more, not in a sneering way at the promises of God as we've seen historically in this text, but a laughter that is joyous, a laughter that is hilarious because Christ has come to us, that he has redeemed us, that he has called us his own, that he is working things in us and through us, and that joy that we will have eternally is already given to us in knowing Christ. What great joy, what great laughter ought to be ours in the midst of a sorrowing and sick world, a moaning under the fall of man, a moaning of even the earth under the weight of sin and human depravity. And so we see here that ultimately Isaac would not just be accomplishing the immediate purposes of God in bringing up a people for himself, but Isaac is also a picture, a picture of ultimately the Messiah one day who will be born, the promised seed. It's giving it in, uh, in an almost a, a climatic way that's giving us continual uh, desire to read more of this text that will come to fulfillment that we see in the early pages of the New Testament. God is at work in his covenant people, accomplishing his purposes. But finally here, we see through the rest of this passage, starting in verse 4, that God is working his ultimate progress in the plan of redemption. Look at verse 4. He says, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. 
Now, we know that God had commanded Abraham to do that for all that were in his household. And this is put in here by inspiration of the Spirit. And Moses penning this is bringing particular attention to Abraham's obedience. Abraham's uh, not forgetting what God has commanded in the past. Not just to name his son by faith, but to separate him from the rest of the world in giving him that covenant sign of circumcision. And in cutting of the flesh and setting him apart with his family and according to this promise, Abraham's faith comes into the spotlight here in verse 4 that he does this even as uh, Isaac is just over one week old. And it says this text at the end of verse 5, or verse 4 rather, that he did this as God had commanded him. You see, the evidence of our faith, truth, a church, is not just that we're confident of the truth, but that we act on the truth. You see, what we really believe is what we practice. Our practice reveals our theology. If we believe that God is sovereign over all things, it's going to affect how we live our lives. It's going to affect how we parent. It's affecting how we respond to a message from the doctor. It's a, it's a response of, in faith in how we look at world events. It's how we respond when we hear the evening news or even seek to start thinking about another election. That God is at work. Do we trust him in his sovereign plan over us? Do we believe that he's able to do for us what he has promised? Abraham did. And notice the context in his, in his old age. Look at verse 5. It says, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, I don't know how you responded when I talked about waiting or patience, but we have to give Abraham credit that even though he failed in multiple ways, as we all do, as far as faithfulness every day of his life and looking to this promise, Abraham's older than us, and he did it a lot longer. And notice the context here of our own frailty, that God works and doesn't need our help. It's through the very decrepitness of old age that he makes himself known that the God who is on high, the God who does not get tired or weary, the God who has endless energy and is constantly able to accomplish his purposes will do it and meet you at your weakest hour. In fact, when you are weak, he is most strong. When you are the most down and out, when you have been battered by life's winds, it is then that God bears fruit through a dying soul that he will ultimately bring praise through. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Some encouragement to all of us across the board. Young people, do not wait to serve the Lord in old age. God has called you at this time. Even the wisdom of Solomon says, fear the Lord while you are young, before the difficult days come. 
for you who are in the middle of your race, be encouraged that God has not left you in the midst of raising family and teaching children and starting another fall semester. Just be encouraged that God is with you, that he's able to help you in the midst of the monotony sometimes of everyday life. Before those difficult days of the school year come, moms, be encouraged here that God meets you in your hour of need. Fathers, that you would continue to put the hand to the plow in serving him wherever he has you in your work and in your labors and in your love for your wives and children. Single people and college students, be encouraged here that that which is not yet should not influence the trusting the Lord now for what you know to be his will. When you know that you're called to look to him in preparation for the future, that God will answer you. You older ones in the Lord, do not be discouraged by old age. You have great, wonderful truths here in the book of Genesis that remind you that God is not finished with you yet. At Abraham was 100 years old. It wasn't until 80 that, that God started to use Moses to take him to the promised land. And so in this way, by faith, you can believe that your best years with the Lord are yet ahead. And certainly it's true that as you walk into eternity, your best days are ahead. The issue is we are all called to live by faith in his grace and to know that this is the very backdrop of the laughter that we ought to have, that the Lord is going to fulfill his promises. He will get us to the celestial city. We can be confident of that. And in the midst of the trials and the pain, he is going to make himself known. And so here we see two really sub-points, or four rather, uh, three subpoints here un under uh, verse four in the way that he is progressing these things. If you notice here in verse five, he's doing it ultimately through the process of our lives in different periods of our life. What God was teaching Abraham when he first called him out of Ur of the Chaldees is different than what he's teaching him now. There's a progress of his own faith in seeing fulfillment and promise. But secondly, we see in verse six that God is doing this through people and people are hearing through our lives. Look at verse six. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. So she's responding and we get by the inspiration of the spirit the, the reality here that God is causing laughter to come to her in her old age, that, that she's able to rejoice in this fulfilled promise. But she also realizes that other people are now noticing this promise that maybe they had been mentioned uh, under their breath over the course of many years has now come to fulfillment that any doubt that anyone would have that Abraham's God was not able to perform what he promised is certainly silenced. And she says, everyone who hears will laugh over me, not just in a physical way that this old woman has given birth, but a joy that their hope is, and their only hope is in the Lord. And so in the context of this, people hear the great message of God's promises through the mouths of his people. Are you doing this in your life? Are people hearing the message based upon how you respond to life circumstances? Are people hearing your faith in the midst of what seems like an eternal time of waiting? And while we can um, be sarcastic about the time, waiting is difficult. 
but it's a test of our faith that brings out the preciousness of what God is accomplishing in you and in me. And notice this produces laughter. The very, the very theme of this text, that God is working all things together for his good or our good and his glory. But finally, it's not just the, uh, the progress through the periods of life or through people, his people, but lastly, notice it's also personal. Look at how this text is so intimate about how Sarah, this is affecting Sarah's life. Look at verse seven. It says, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Notice that she's asking this question that she would, in her old age, be able to nurse children. But notice it's also in the plural, children. There's a sense of, by faith, that the reality of the birth of Isaac brings to mind the extension of this promise into the future, that she indeed is going to be the mother of many. And we know from the context of the New Testament, this isn't just physical progeny, but progeny by faith. And so we see in the very life of Sarah this ultimate proclamation that we too can trust the Lord, that we can understand him, we can know him, we can intimately be involved in his work and he in our lives. Notice he does this, how it personally affects her, first of all. Notice that she is saying that who would have said this? Who would have said that, that, that uh, Abraham and Sarah would, would be parents. No one would have said that. In other words, the, the, uh, the point of it is that only God, this is not possible with men, only God could have come up with this. Who would have said it? Well, God has said it. And isn't that the truth? When we think about the gospel message, when we're living in this world, it seems because our faith has not become sight that sometimes we are crazy people. Have you ever had somebody actually tell you that as a Christian? I, I, I remember that very often in many times when I've shared my faith. People are like, well, you're confident about that and you believe it, but man, it's weird. I mean, from, a, from a, an unsaved person's perspective, like you believe in a virgin birth, you believe in life after death, you believe that the person you're worshiping actually was crucified, buried, and then resurrected, and you believe this guy's in heaven, and that you talk to him on a daily basis, and you personally know him? Yes. <laughs> and so in those conversations, when you have those about the gospel, and you say amen to the gospel, and they repeat it to you, it's amazing to see how God is working this in the lives of you and me that it seems impossible, as Sarah says here. How is it that, that I would nurse children in my old age? How in the world could Abraham, as good as dead, have children? And yet God made it possible. I think we see this also in the lives of people who become Christians. I have heard story after story after story of great redemption stories of mothers weeping and saying, I have prayed for him for 40 years and God saved him. 
And it teaches us perseverance in the Christian lives. It teaches us to be consistent and persistent in our prayers for the unsaved. It calls us to continue with endurance as we preach the gospel when we feel that it's not being planted and the seed is not growing. It gives us confidence that when we trust the Lord, he will bring to pass all that he has promised. And so in the midst of this, church, be encouraged that it doesn't just personally affect us, but those that hear. Notice who would have thought, who would have said, well, God has the final word, and he ultimately brings these things to pass. And so Sarah says at the end of verse, six, or verse 7, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The miraculous, really, birth of Isaac in this way shows that God is able to keep his promises, that God doesn't need the help of human ingenuity, but he ultimately accomplishes this in his perfect timing. It's very interesting, Calvin, in responding to this very verse, says that the propagation of the human race, his special benediction here is conspicuous, and therefore the birth of every child is rightly deemed as the effect of divine visitation. And what he's getting at as you continue to read uh, what he's saying is ultimately in God's sovereign plan, every one of us made in God's image was his plan. It was his purpose. He put you together. He identified you. He called you. He chose your gender at birth. He is the one that has set you apart from others. You are unique in all of your physical features, but also your very existence. Your DNA, everything he's formed together in your mother's womb. He made you to be who you are, and you are not called to be anyone else. And so he calls you to trust him with who you are. And I love this quote from Calvin because it puts the very essence on the the draw-dropping nature that we ought to have when any child is brought into the world. But it also should cause us to moan when we consider the lives of many children who are aborted and the great weight that we feel in our hearts that a God image bearer has gone into death rather than into life and that does not escape the Lord's notice. We see Matthew Henry also saying these words, God's promises to his covenant people are such as surpass both their own and others' thoughts and expectations. Who would have said that God should send his son to die for us? Who would have said that he would send his spirit? Who would have said that he would sanctify us? Who would have said that he would come and rescue the souls of men? Who would even say that his angels would attend to us in this fallen world? Who would have said that such great sins should be pardoned? I think that note right there prepares us here to respond to him as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments. That this great awe that Sarah and Abraham had at this promised son should be the laughter and the joy in our hearts as we approach uh, the remembrance of why Christ was given, why he came, this promised one that we celebrate at Christmas but should celebrate the rest of the year who died and rose again. He did it on our behalf. And there should be great laughter and joy because he's taken us from death to life. 
He has taken our old bodies. We're good as dead like Abraham, but we are being made alive as we're being renewed in spirit day by day. And what we shall be has not yet been revealed. The best is yet to come, church. And Abraham is encouraging this from this text. The gospel is right here in verse uh, 20, or chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Do not miss that God is able to continue in you that which he began. And that joy that should be there because of the great gospel, he will accomplish it until the day of redemption. I encourage you, if you find yourself discouraged by sin, he will lead you through. Turn by faith and trust that he is able to free you from whatever ensnares you. Those of you who are discouraged by life's circumstances, be encouraged. He is with you. Let me encourage you for those who are discouraged maybe in their uh, sins of omission, that you're not sharing your faith, that God will answer that prayer every time. Ask him to bring you opportunities to share and he will do that as you continue to live by faith. And finally, if there's any of us here this morning that need to be reminded of where true joy comes from, not in this life, but ultimately in the face of God, may you be able to put aside anything that has your attentions and affections and that God would erase those and show them for what they are, that you might gaze upon his glorious presence and that you would take joy in nothing else than the surpassing riches of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage. The fulfillment or even the apex of this part of Genesis that you have brought us a son. And we see here the promises from Genesis 3.15 that you would produce the seed of the woman. And while Isaac wasn't the, the end of the statement, he is a, a very uh, thread that we see in your progress of redemption, your plan of redemption. And Father, help us to be encouraged that while Isaac was a bright spot in the midst of great turmoil in Abraham and Sarah's life, Lord, help us to be encouraged this morning looking at this passage that uh, this is encouragement for the journey today. And it, it, it's not meant to uh, be the encouragement of tomorrow or yesterday, but today, that we would look to you in faith that you are able to bless us and keep us, that your face would shine upon us and be gracious to us. And Lord, that your peace, which surpasses all understanding, would be ours because of our uh, relationship with you in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you help us, Lord, as we chew on this passage, as we uh, go to a time of response and prayer in preparation to come to your table. Lord, do the work that only you can to produce fruit from your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
church, as we come before the Lord's table, it's a special time for us. Um, we know uh, through our study of First Corinthians, we <clears throat> actually just studied through chapter 11 and uh, the glories of the Lord's table. And I, a few warnings that we often come across from the book of Corinthians is that uh, we can be rote in our understanding of what the Lord's table is. That oftentimes we think that the Lord's Supper is just something that we do and something we just accomplish. But the Lord reminds us that he is working something in a very healthy way in our souls. A renewal, if you will, of the covenant to remind us in these elements of the gospel that we're able to see the glories of the gospel, that he was broken for us and that his body and his shed blood is a new covenant. And this understanding of covenant should remind us as we see echoed from Genesis that we are in relationship to him. And so by very definition, if you're not in relationship with him and you have never repented of your sins, there's a great warning here to not partake of the supper. To partake of it would be lying, to say that you have uh, fellowship with him when you don't belong to him, to say that you're a part of something that you also have not taken of and ate of and drank of in that sense. But we also see in the context of this, there's celebration as we've been looking at with the laughter that came from Isaac, that there should be a, a celebration. And this is exactly what Paul rebukes the church at Corinth for, is that in relation to their uh, uh, larger meal, that, that people were distorting that. People were going ahead of each other and even some getting drunk. And so we see that with great um, chaos, God calls the church at Corinth back into focus here. And so this is another reason why we as a church believe that the Lord's table should be connected to a larger uh, love feast or gathering as we see from uh, the pattern of the Old Testament, let alone the pattern of, of the historical Christian church to partake together and enjoy each other's presence and fellowship, not for the purpose of just devouring food, but to uh, intimately be involved in each other's lives. And so we see from the very encouragement of the Apostle Paul that no one should come to the table if they have something against their brother. Wait and go to your brother before coming to the table. And so we see the great need for our souls here. And so I want to encourage you that before we come to the table, that you would take time to, uh, as much time as necessary and as you need, to um, be right with the Lord before you come to the table. The elements will be on both sides of uh, the sanctuary. Um, you can come and, and grab those as you uh, are ready and then take them back to your seat. We will partake together of the elements and, um, and trust the Lord to work these great refreshing reminders in our souls that he indeed is the one who has purchased us he is the one that is providing for us, and he is the one that is nourishing our souls as he reminds us of this great covenant that he has given to us in Christ and made for us. So let's pray, and then um, I'll have our deacons um, get the elements ready. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this Lord's Day that we can partake of your table. Lord, what we 
often called communion. Lord, in the context of the Passover supper that you took bread and you broke it, telling your disciples this, this was your body that was broken for them, to do this in remembrance of you. And so, Lord, this is a remembering feast, a remembering of what you have accomplished for us, whose we are, and what you're doing in us. And so as we prepare to take this bread, help us to reflect, Lord, that you were broken for us, that you've taken our sin as far as the east is from the west. How is it that you should be so kind to us? And then secondly, Lord, we know that you gave us the cup, the cup that is the new covenant in your blood, that, Lord, you were the perfect mediator between God and man. You took upon yourself the sins of us, your people, and you replaced it with your righteousness. This is the glories of the gospel, that we are justified before you. We are sanctified. And therefore, you tell us that sin should no longer have power in our lives, that we are to put it to death, to reckon ourselves indeed dead to sin. And so, Lord, it's a reminder in this new covenant that we ought to be called to correction. Perhaps there's things in our lives that need to be put to death. Would you, by your Spirit, do that work in us? That you would enable us, by your great power, the very power that rose Jesus from the dead, to put sin to death and put Satan at bay, that you might be glorified in us and sanctified and hallowed in our hearts. And so, Lord, we come to you with eagerness, but also sobriety. Expectation, but also humility. Great joy, but also great reverence. And so help us in these moments, Lord, as we come to the table, that you would be glorified for our good. In Jesus' name.
Church, the bread represents his body that was broken for you. Take and eat. church, the cup, his redemption made known in your life and mine through his great gospel. Take and drink. Would you pray with me? Lord, how is it that we, recipients of your grace, as Abraham and Sarah looked to these things, they awaited these things, and we are able to look back and see your glorious accomplishment of these promises on the cross. We are thankful people, Lord. We remember what you have done on our behalf, and we are thankful that you have redeemed us and taken us out of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous Son, You've removed every stain, and the only one that can ever do that is you. And you've given us robes of righteousness, bought by the death of your Son. How is it that we would be new creations apart from your gracious work? Oh, Father, build this thankfulness in us, that our lives would be loudspeakers for your great kindness and your great gospel. Lord, that our very presence would be the fragrance of Christ. That, Lord, you would accomplish these things more and more in us as we see the day approaching that you return or call us to be with you. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours, the laughter that should come to our lips because we are loved. And your love has been made known in your great presence in our lives. We thank you. Would you receive honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would our ushers come forward for this morning's offering? I was short-sighted in praying for that as well, so let us um, pray for that as well as we uh, prepare to give. Lord Jesus, we thank you also for the opportunity to give as only uh, you have provided for us. And so we pray that you would take these gifts as not just um, uh, wrote things that we uh, accomplish each week, but Lord, that you would take these funds for the furtherance of your gospel, that you would give great wisdom to us in stewarding these funds for the support of missionaries to the support of this church and her mission here in Ashe County to the provision of the saints and uh, the relief of the poor and all the things that we're called to, Lord, that you would provide for us, Lord. We are needful of that. Unless you provide, Lord, uh, we shall be in want. And so help us to take a portion of that which you've given to us and give with cheerful hearts, hilarious hearts, laughing hearts, Lord, because you are able to provide uh, abundantly, exceedingly above all we could ask or think. And so take these, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.
if y'all stand, we'll sing our last song of worship together. Yeah. 
we have many reasons to be glad and praise the Lord. Amen. Our benediction comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, the end of verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You are dismissed. Church, we'll meet out at Ash Park in uh, a little bit. So we'll see you there. Sometimes we don't talk about that. Thank you.